Sashin is a time to come together and investigate the nature of reality, to look into the mystery and the wonder and the beauty, the aliveness of this life. Trusting that what is needed is not exotic, something out there, but it's here in our daily life, in walking to the cafeteria for breakfast, in this body, in this moment, In this session, we are being guided by the wisdom found in the Diamond Sutra. This sutra is a beloved text in the Chan tradition, in the Mahayana tradition. And it's part of a collection of texts that are called Perfection of Wisdom Sutras that were compiled, gathered together in about the second to the third century of the common era. In Sanskrit, the title for this text is the Vajra Chedika Prajna Paramita Sutta. Vajra Chedika. It means the diamond cutter perfection of wisdom sutra. So the word diamond here could be referring to two different things. The translation, the original means both. One is thunderbolt, that this thunderbolt of insight is possible. And the other refers to a diamond, that stone that is so hard, so pure, that it can cut through all the other metals, that it can cut through confusion, that it can cut through delusion, cut through this. And prajna, prajna is wisdom. The perfection of wisdom text that cuts like a thunderbolt. The diamond cutter perfection of wisdom sutra. Perfection of wisdom. Wisdom that goes beyond wisdom. That's what that's saying. The wisdom beyond wisdom. Using the fantastic strength and clarity of the diamond to cut through the confusion to reveal the beauty and the wonder and the truth of this life. So the setting for the sutra 
is in a garden in the Jetta Grove. There were some wealthy uh, merchants who donated land to uh, the Buddha's order outside of town. And so in the rainy season, they would come together in this place and intensify their study, just like we're doing now in Ango. There were huts, little places for them to get out of the elements, and they would go each day into the town, and they were given food, and then they could come back to this Jetta's Grove and practice. It sounds idealistic, doesn't it? You just picture it almost like a Disney movie. But that's, that's not how reality is, is it? At that time, medicine was rudimentary. There were, you know, just like now, sickness and death, infant mortality rates had to be very high. Everyone knew sorrow and suffering. Just like us. Later on in the sutra, the player, um, Sabuti, who I'll introduce in a minute, he keeps asking the Buddha over and over again, what's going to happen 500 lifetimes from now? He's thinking, it's bad now, and it's only going to get worse, right? It's just like us. We're worried about the future, and we're worried about all the violence that we see and what will happen. It was like that then, too, in, in the Jetta Grove in this park. So the two main people in this sutra We'll say three. There's 1,250 monks, too. So there's all of us sitting there listening. And then there's the Buddha. And at this time, the Buddha is 65-ish, they think. So not a young man. He's had this enlightenment experience and wondered at that time, is this so profound and so subtle that I can even teach this to anyone? But he decides to give this gift. And then years go by, and he learns from his experience. He doesn't teach exactly the same way over all these years. He interacts. This is relational. So he's been teaching for 25 or 30 years, and the way he teaches matures. After the Buddha's enlightenment, the first thing he taught was how, what is suffering and how to free ourselves from suffering. He taught about impermanence and interdependence, and he gave us the tools of understanding this through the lens of the Four Noble Truths, that there's suffering, that there's a release from suffering, that clinging and desire is what causes that, and then laid out the Eightfold Path, this way that 
we can gradually, for some of us, open to an understanding, a, a heartfelt understanding of this. He taught the truth of impermanence. That's, that's what we've been exploring in our meditation practice here, right now, in, in this zendo. We sit, we know what our practice is going to be, we calm the mind through the breath or feeling the body. We realize when thoughts come up, turn back to the practice, see this flow of impermanence, feel this flow, appreciate this interconnection. Suffering comes from grasping, trying to hold on to what is ungraspable, trying to hold on to what is fluid and changing. And we're seeing this every sitting period. He taught that there is no constant unchanging self, even though it feels so much like there is. And that when we live from this mistaken viewpoint, that's our center, suffering happens. We can realize that this self is not so solid and immovable, so permanent. We can realize that there's a flow, and we are this flow. This is, this is emptiness. This is shunyata. This is, this is what the enso is, is depicting. This is the emptiness of reality. This is the wisdom of emptiness. So... That was at the beginning of his teaching, after his enlightenment. This is what he was teaching. And then time goes on, and he matures and refines the way he is able to help us understand this. And he began to teach the emptiness of emptiness. It's hard to understand. It can turn into words, the emptiness of emptiness, like looking in mirror and seeing a reflection and a reflection. He began to teach in the latter part of his career the emptiness of emptiness. He called this teaching the perfection of emptiness. It goes beyond. He taught people to put the emptiness of emptiness to work for the liberation of all beings, for everyone else to comprehend, to take in, to live this understanding and give it out. 
Prajna means wisdom. Paramita, the perfection that goes beyond. Prajna Paramita. Vajra Chedika, Prajna Paramita, the diamond cutter wisdom that goes beyond. The collection of these teachings are known as the Perfect Wisdom Sutras. And the Diamond Sutra that that we're working with is one of these sutras, a group of these teachings from the latter part of the Buddha's life where he has refined and then is passing on this very subtle teaching. So back to the Jetta Grove and Ongo. We're all here to intensify our practice. We have the time now because we're not out in daily life. We're not having to wander about like the monks were. They are taken care of like we are. So they come back from their alms rounds. They've eaten, they sit down, and the Buddha's sitting showing that this life is what's happening right here and right now. He's teaching right then. Sabuti is one of the elder monks. He is a a leader of the community. He is the monk who has shown himself to have the deepest understanding of emptiness, of shunyata. So Sabuti stands up and asks a question. When sincere men and women seek enlightenment, what should they do? And how should they control their minds? What a good question. Did you, did you ever have that moment before you go into Sanzen and you think, gosh, I should have a good question? This is good. The first time I heard this, I I thought, wow, I'm on the edge of my seat. I I want to know the answer to this. What should sincere men and women, what should we do? What should we do? And how do we control this? What will the Buddha say? Here's how he responds. All bodhisattvas who sincerely seek the truth should control their minds by focusing on one thought only. When I attain enlightenment, I will liberate all sentient beings in every realm of the universe and allow them to pass into the eternal peace of nirvana. And yet, when vast, uncountable, unthinkable myriads of beings have been liberated, in reality, no one has been liberated. Why? because no one who is a true bodhisattva entertains such concepts as self and others. Thus, in reality, there is no self to attain enlightenment and no sentient beings to be liberated. This is the answer to how should I hold my mind. Then he gives the answer to what should I do. The Buddha said, furthermore, Subhuti, when bodhisattvas act generously, they shouldn't attach 
to the concept of acting generously. This is called acting generously while not attaching to form, and acting generously while not attaching to sight or sound or smell or taste or touch or concepts. If bodhisattvas act generously without attaching to concepts or generosity, their merit will be incalculable. I did not see that one coming. <laughs> that I, I was um, surprised by that answer, baffled by that response. I thought it was, you know, how you, you hear a question, and you think, well, what will it be? What will the answer be? If, you know, he's going to talk about the Four Noble Truths. He's going to talk about the Eightfold Path. He's going to talk about impermanence, and he's going to talk about interconnection. No, he talks about bodhisattvas and generosity. In fact, Subhuti's question doesn't even ask him about bodhisattvas. He asks, what should sincere men and women do? And he answers with bodhisattvas. I thought, I thought is he even answering the same question? <laughs> what could this mean? When sincere men and women seek enlightenment, what should they do and how should they control their minds? The Buddha's response is a teaching on the emptiness of emptiness. And the practice that he's teaching is to develop insight and embody this through the bodhisattva path. He's teaching wisdom beyond wisdom. I was looking for his teaching on emptiness. Back to the story. So, Buddha or Subhuti asks, when sincere men and women seek enlightenment, what should they do and how should they control their minds? So, remember what Subhuti knew. He was the senior most disciple who had the deepest understanding of emptiness. He knew, he, he appreciated the suffering and the cause of suffering. He saw impermanence and interdependence. He understood, he knew he was living, that there was no constant self. He was an arhat. But his question revealed to the Buddha that he was still thinking in terms of self and others. He was not free of the concept of self and other. What do we need to do? What do I need to do, Buddha? How do we get there? How do we get from here to there? How shall sincere men and women control their minds to get there? How shall I control my mind? This is from the point of view of self, isn't it? This is where Subhuti was coming from. He didn't quite understand yet, and the Buddha saw and understood that and wanted to help him, wanted to guide him into an understanding of the emptiness beyond emptiness. His question revealed that he was still thinking in terms of self and others, he was not free from the concept of self and other. 
Here's a translation of the Buddha's response, a different translation. The Buddha addressed Sabuti saying, Bodhisattva Mahasattvas should thus subdue their minds. Where there is every single sort of sentient being, whether born, whether egg-born, or womb-born, or water-born, or born of transformation, whether having form or formless, whether having thought or no thought, whether neither having thought nor no thought, I will cause all to enter the non-residual nirvana, liberating them, thus liberating the measureless, countless, and boundless sentient beings. And in reality, there are no sentient beings attaining that liberation. And why, Sabuti? If a bodhisattva has the image of a self, the image of a person, the image of a being, or the image of a soul, then he is not a bodhisattva. That translation really expands. It's not just people, sentient being. It's, it's every rock and mineral, every atom in the universe, every, everything imbued with this life Buddha energy. Furthermore, Sabuti, a bodhisattva in the Dharma should not dwell in the practice of charity, of generosity. He does not dwell in the forms of charity, does not dwell in the sights, sounds, odors, tactile sensation, or idea of charity. A bodhisattva should thus be charitable, but not dwelling in such images. The Buddha is teaching Sabuti to look deeper. The Buddha is teaching us to look deeper, beyond, to apprehend the emptiness, the flow, the suchness of emptiness itself, the perfection of wisdom. The Buddha is teaching us to develop insight and embody this truth through the bodhisattva path, the teaching and then the practice, the teaching of the perfection of emptiness through the bodhisattva path. Two parts to developing this bodhisattva path. Generous action to all sentient beings. So that is all sentient beings. That is a big category. Where there is every single sort of being, whether egg-born, womb-born, water-born, paramecium, born of transformation, form or formless, having thought or no thought, rocks and minerals, neither having thought nor thought, nor no thought, I will cause all to enter the non-residual nirvana. I will bring everybody. I will muster the wish for enlightenment and, and through that, all of these other forms, through thus liberating the measureless and countless and boundless sentient beings, <laughs> pull the rug out from under my feet. And in reality, there are no sentient beings attaining this liberation.
just when you start to get a grasp of this concept, then he adds in, <laughs> there is no self. There is no other. There are no sentient beings. There's generosity. Is there? But not with clinging. Not through any of the senses. And why? If a bodhisattva has the image of a self, the image of a person, the image of a being, or the image of a soul, then he is not a bodhisattva. Then you're not on the bodhisattva path. So throughout the sutra, the Buddha, he's, he's so kind to Sabuti in this sutra. He's, he's kind to us. We're confused and we don't even know what we don't know. We ask our question. We think we got a great question and it turns out our question is revealing that we really don't understand. And so in the sutra, he starts out and he asks Sabuti a question, he clarifies, and then Sabuti is confused again, or he, 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 he knows by the way Sabuti responds that he doesn't quite have it, that he's still grabbing onto something. So he starts out with, you know, um, the answer to his question, and then he understands that Sabuti is attaching to him as a person or his physical characteristics or our personality. We get hung up on thinking, well, that's who we are or this, this form or even time, even our lifespan throughout this or even our hopes and dreams for the future, right? So throughout the sutra, each time he brings up a point, the angle is just ever so slightly different, just a word or two different, and he's coming at it from a different way, trying to nudge the booty and trying to nudge us into being able to finally see, with a clear mind, see what's really happening, what this reality is. The Buddha said, everything that has a physical form is an illusion. The world is not what we name it or what we think it. And there is no such thing as self and other. Each object in this fleeting world is like a lightning flash, a bubble in a stream, a wisp of smoke, a cloud, a drop of dew, a fading star at dawn, a breath, a dream. We are Sabuti, and the Buddha is teaching us. Here is a, um, a translation of part of the Diamond Sutra that was done by Thich Nhat Hanh that focuses on generosity. The Buddha said to Sabuti, however many beings there are, however they're birthed, whether they have form or do not have form, whether they have perceptions or do not have perceptions, we must lead all these beings to ultimate nirvana so they can be liberated. And when this innumerable, immeasurable, infinite number of beings has been liberated, we do not in truth think that a single being has been liberated. This is so because a bodhisattva holds on to the idea that a self, 
a person, a living being, or a lifespan exists. Oh, this is so because if, big word, if a bodhisattva holds on to the idea that a person, a self, a living being, or a lifespan exists, that person is not an authentic bodhisattva. Moreover, when a bodhisattva practices generosity, they do not rely on any object, no form, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, no dharma, to practice generosity. This is the spirit in which a bodhisattva should practice generosity, not relying on signs. If a, bodha, if a bodhisattva practices generosity without relying on signs, the happiness that results cannot be conceived or measured. The space in the eastern quarter cannot be measured. So in the western, southern, and northern quarters, as well as above and below, they cannot be measured. If a bodhisattva does not rely on any concept when practicing generosity, then the happiness that results from that virtuous act is as great as space. It cannot be measured. Let your mind dwell in the teachings I have just given. A bodhisattva practices generosity. This was really surprising for me. <laughs> um, the Diamond Sutra is addressing this primary delusion, this belief that we have a solid self, a fixed a personality. I am a personality. I am this being. I live in this time. I'll live this many years. I have a family. I'm attached to them. I have teachers. And even the teachings that they teach. This sense of belief. It's addressing the idea that this is not what we think it is. And offering the practice of bodhicitta, this desire to know liberation, to know reality, as a way to weaken and cut through this misapprehension. I, I could, like, how does that even work? <laughs> they seem like they're not, almost not related concepts. So I pondered that, and how can it be that this solid sense of self I have, I feel it in my body, you know, I am. How can it be that generosity would be the thing that would help me to understand the flow, the mystery of this life, help me to be what I am unhindered. I had the picture in my mind of this big heavy boulder and this person trying to, little me, trying to push that boulder, getting nowhere, that solid sense of me, and then having the idea to take a long stick, a lever, and put it under the boulder and hang from the boulder and try to give it a push that way. 
with the words generosity written on <laughs> is that is that it if we if we take generosity into our very being this vow to awaken for this for the sake of other people does that give a little leverage on this solid so fixed belief in self So I've been experimenting with that during Zazen, and I invite you to experiment along with me. So if you'd like, as you're sitting there, bring up a feeling of, you know, what it was, why you, why you started to practice, but keep it really personal and not for the benefit of others. This is like what you want when you come to practice. I want to not suffer. I, I want to be authentic and I want to connect to people and I want to feel happiness. I want to be enlightened. What, what, what do you wish for yourself? This is this is this is a good thing to do. This is wholesome. This is this is fuel for um, st- for starting the path, for staying on the path. What does it feel like in your body when you really want something, even such a wholesome thing? Where do you feel it? To me, there's. There's an effort, like I want to, mm, I want to draw it in. And now, shake that one off. Step to the side. This time, we're going to add in generosity. What does it feel like when we still want these things, but we want them? Like, what if? By those things happening, we could actually be helpful to other people. Wouldn't that be great? What if by this work that we're doing, taking in these truths, this practice, what flowed out was actually of benefit to everybody else here? What would that feel like? You open your eyes and you see all of our friends in the Zendo and think, What if I'm practicing for me and all of you? How does that feel in the body? What happens if I begin a period of sitting by first opening to the aspiration for enlightenment to really deeply understand and be this reality? And that is beneficial to everybody, not only to all of you, but to rocks and minerals and paramecium and planets and solar systems. Bringing the flavor of that generosity to Zazen. Not the words, but the, the, the feeling of it. Is this a lever to move that 
sense of self, that belief in the constancy of form, in that belief in mental constructs, the conceptions that are so tight. And then the Buddha reminds us that this is empty too. This is an illusion. It's not how we think. It's comforting to think I can imagine these things and bring them to Zazen, and that's going to be helpful, but that's a construct too. Oh, right, pulled out from under my feet again. <laughs> that's the constant image that I get when I'm reading this sutra, sort of like a banana peel or like a magic carp, and I'm on it, I think I got it, and then whoosh, I'm falling back again. And the falling back, that's an illusion too. Like, I used, to th- I used to say one of the things I would think is, I really want to know this reality before I die. And I'm starting to think, wow, <laughs> that seems kind of scary. <laughs> I've got nothing to hang on to. That's what he's saying. We don't have anything to hang on to. The only thing bodhisattvas need to do is to free themselves from all concepts and nurture the aspiration of freedom. They shouldn't allow the mind to dwell on concepts that arise from anything they can perceive, from sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, or any other qualities. The mind should be kept independent of any thought that arises within it. If the mind depends upon anything, it has no sure refuge. If the mind depends on anything, it has no sure refuge. That's really back, you know, backwards thinking. I need to depend on this so I can have refuge. <laughs> Upside down. If the mind depends on anything, it has no sure refuge. This is what we're doing in Zazen. We sit down. We get clear on what our practice is. We focus on our breath, the mind settles down, it becomes more clear. And for maybe just tiny periods of time, maybe for a little bit longer, we experience these moments when we're not grasping at anything. Maybe it's just a brief moment between breaths, but it's there. The intellectual mind wants to convince us it's not there. It wants to convince us that our experience isn't good enough, but it's there. We bathe in this. We're starting to shift our body, this you know, very rough form, to take in these very subtle experiences. It's a progression, you know, we have to bathe in it over and over again, and then we start to be able to accept it. And then we look, we're, we're there, we're sitting, no refuge. What is it? What is this? What is this life? What remains when we let go of everything? What is it? In some of the translations, 
they don't say bodhisattva, they say fearless bodhisattva. And with the rug keeps pulling, getting pulled out from under my feet over and over again, I start to understand why they're calling them fearless bodhisattvas. So, um, the Buddha's story is that he was awakened. And in the Pali Canon, there are some descriptions of this event. And one of the lines, and it comes back to me over and over, it's the Buddha describing this. He describes his understanding that he gained of the Four Noble Truths. And he says, Such was the the vision, insight, knowing, and wisdom, and light that arose in me about things not known before. I I find this so comforting because in my fantasy mind, there was this guy, and all of a sudden... Boom, he knew everything, and then he was perfect and lived his life. But but this was Shakyamuni, a person, and he's describing it. Such was the vision. He, He saw what the possibility was. And then when the mind became clear, he had insight. It arose. He didn't know it before. It arose, and it became wisdom. He lived it. It came out of him. It was a light that arose in him about things not known before. This is, this is the process. This is our process, too. We don't know something, and then we get the idea that, oh, there's, there's a possibility here. There are teachings that show us this could happen. This, this might happen. And then we sit and experience, and out of who knows where, insight comes, and we know something that we didn't know before. And then we integrate that. It becomes, the, it becomes who we are. It becomes knit into this whatever we are, and then expressed out and benefits people. The Buddha was teaching and refining his teaching just like we learn and refine what we're learning. It's a process, teaching wisdom and then teaching the perfection of wisdom. Even that is refined. Even for Sabuti, it was a process throughout the whole sutra. He was learning. He didn't quite have it right. The Buddha pointed it out. He said how he thought it was. He tweaked it a little bit more. He was leading him to an understanding so kindly, just like we are being led to an understanding. And we begin where we begin. I've had the good fortune of learning to play the recorder as an adult. 
And learning an instrument as an adult, you get to learn a lot about learning. And it's a process. I may fantasize about playing a Bach sonata, but I start at hot cross buns on the recorder. I start with the C scale. And if I zip ahead to trying to puzzle out the notes in the Bach sonata, I don't get the foundation that I need. I don't have an understanding. But it's important to hear it. It's important to know that it exists, where I'm going. It changes the way I hear by listening. This is how, this is how we learn. We begin where we begin. This is part of the Eightfold Path, the first, the first fold is right view. You start to understand that there are ways to see the world that lead to happiness and away from unhappiness. And then we start to refine our understanding. And as we do, we're able to take in more and more subtle aspects of this. We begin where we are here. The Buddha taught from where he was. We begin with our current level of understanding. We practice in this moment. We see the benefits of the teaching in our friends. Maybe we feel it in ourselves. We're guided by our teachers and by these words. We learn about suffering and about the possibility of enlightenment, but that's not it. We sit, we meditate, we experience unwinding, uncovering, revealing. What is it? What is it? The world is not what we name it or think it, and there is no such thing as self or other. Each object in this fleeting world is like a lightning flash, a bubble in the stream, a wisp of smoke, a cloud, a drop of dew, a fading star at dawn, a breath, a dream. <laughs> 